Welcome to episode 134 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to examining the works of writer-director producer J.J. Abrams, as well as his extended Bad Robot universe. I'm Matt Crandall, here with my co-host Marcelo Inestroza, as we take a look at some of the early writing credits of one Jeffrey J.J. Abrams. This was the first movie that he did ditch the Jeffrey after the embarrassment of having a writing credit on Gone Fishing, and he took the on-screen moniker of J.J. Abrams that would be used for his career going forward. And one of the first things he got called in to do was a polish of a disaster movie that was originally written by Tony Gilroy and Shane Salerno, who people might know as Shane Salerno, writer on all the Avatar sequels with James Cameron and his writer's room. So this guy's still around and kicking. And of course, Tony Gilroy being the creative mind behind incredible franchise things like Andor and the Bourne movies. And he wrote these this script and the director wanted somebody to come in and make it a little bit more pop, a little bit more feel good, friendly. And Jonathan Hensley and J.J. Abrams came in. Jonathan Hensley, who would go on to write and direct the Punisher with Thomas Jane and a few other things. And JJ gave this kind of what I think would be the mass appeal special sauce that turns this movie from being nerdy sci-fi into huge, gigantic 4th of July summer. Let's drop this movie in theaters and watch people watch shit explode. Marcelo, what are you thinking of JJ's first foray into huge blockbuster filmmaking because everything he wrote before this was much smaller in scale i can tell you that i definitely had it on vhs so i saw it as a kid growing up probably probably on vhs uh at home but even back in the day before jj became one of my idols i i always knew that there was there was there was something there was an element of fun and wonder to this film and that's you know that's saying a lot because this film is essentially about oil drillers being being asked by the American government to go save the planet. So so just on that alone, the ask is sort of like big. And if you don't go with that with that concept from the start of the movie, you're going to hate this entire thrill ride. But I think that this is early Michael Bay. This film does something really, really smart before um, Harry Stamper and his uh, cast of oil drillers get called by NASA to save the planet. JJ spends a lot of time developing the relationship between Harry Stamper, Grace, and AJ, right? So you already you you are already invested in these people before they're asked to do something incredibly difficult incredibly difficult to save the planet. And even even the uh, even the supporting cast gets a little bit get, you know you know gets gets character traits here and there to make you care about them before they're thrust into the incredible before they're thrust into the unbelievable situation that asks them to you know to risk their lives for everyone else on earth and that's something that I don't think um, um, Michael Bay films have done a lot since Armageddon the rock is an exception because of the, because of the uh, actors that he has in that film but this is the film that did really great character work before the giant ask of this film. I think one of the main distinctions of first half of Michael Bay's career versus Transformers and beyond 
is that early Michael Bay, he still did bring his signature style, his Bayham, his low angle 360 shots, looking up at people as they look confused and look to the sky. We have all that stuff, but we also made sure that the scripts were fairly tight or at least had cohesive stories. And I feel like there's a certain point in Bay's career where he starts to think the stories and the characters aren't as important as what I'm bringing to the movie. And the Bayham takes over and becomes the focal point. So a lot of those movies later aren't as strong because they didn't have scripts that were any good. But Michael Bay thought like, People aren't coming to these movies for the scripts. They're coming because they're a Michael Bay movie. And it, they're few and far between where he does have hits now. But when you watch something like Six Underground, and you're like, how did anyone think this was going to work? And the answer is they all just thought the Bayhem would carry the day, and it didn't. <laughs> Whereas here, we actually have quite interesting characters. There are moments that I think played better previous that don't quite work now. And we'll get into those as we sort of break down the story. But one of the key things that struck me when I first saw this movie was this movie was of a time in the second half of the 90s. There was this wave where it felt like Hollywood was always doing the same idea twice. And so the the big famous examples are Pixar does a bug's life and DreamWorks does ants. And they come out within like three months of each other in. I think it was 97 Dante's Peak and Volcano come out three months apart from each other. And then in 1998, Memorial Day, Deep Impact comes out. And Deep Impact, which has a similar plot, there's an asteroid that's going to be an extinction-level event coming towards the Earth, um, comes out, and I remember seeing both of these movies in the theater, and I was blown away by Deep Impact. I was like, holy shit, this movie... Because what was rare at the time... And maybe it was kind of, you know, starting to become the norm was a lot of these big, big movies weren't that emotional. But Deep Impact is like an incredibly sad and thoughtful movie, which is like very rare for a a big Memorial Day blockbuster. And there are moments where like it's devastating, but the effects and everything were great. So Armageddon coming out after and being like this Bruce Willis vehicle directed by the guy who had done The Rock, which I absolutely loved. I was eager to see it, but I loved Deep Impact so much. I was like, I don't know who's going to win, but Deep Impact's got the edge. And I didn't feel the marketing for Armageddon really hyped it up to be as fun as it ended up being. And I remember seeing this on opening night. So Deep Impact had Memorial Day. Armageddon came out here in Canada on Canada Day, July 1st. So it was the big, you know, for, for the US, the July 4th weekend movie or whatever. And I saw it. And I was fucking floored. I was like, this is one of the most fun blockbusters. I can't believe how entertaining this is. Bruce Willis at the height of his star power. At the time, I thought like, you know, Ben Affleck was really charming and like a good foil. And of course, I had fallen in love with Liv Tyler from her previous movies. I wasn't such a huge fan of Empire Records, but that thing you do is one of my all time favorite movies still is. And then to see her here at like her peak, peak hotness, um, just looking sad and pouty the whole movie. When this thing finished, I was like, holy shit. And I went, I went and I saw it the next day again. Cause I was like, this was mind blowing. And I remember going to work after I saw this movie and I was like telling everyone, I was like, Armageddon is amazing. You have to go see it. It's got humor. It's sad. Like you'll cry. It's got this amazing, like Aerosmith soundtrack. 
And people were looking at me. They were like, what? And I'm like, no, for real, you got to see this. Like this, this feels like a, a throwback blockbuster where like you care about the characters and there's a wide variety of characters and watching it now, I think most of it still holds up. There are, there are moments that I probably in 98, the animal cracker scene, I was like, this is romance. And now I'm like, this is bullshit. This is ridiculous. So some of it hasn't held up, but murderers row cast that when you watch it now, you're like, holy shit. Like I said, Bruce Willis at the height of his, like, you know, I'm fucking John McClane. I can make any movie huge. And after this, he would go on his Shyamalan run. So like, dude was just elevating and elevating. Affleck is like all charisma. He, when he has to bring the emotion near the end is where like his performance really falls apart. But when he's being the smart ass, like Harry, there's, there's five words you need to say to me. And I want to hear you say, AJ, I'm sorry, whatever. Okay. That's 18 words. Like he's charming. Then like just the, the rest of the team, you know, being Owen Wilson, Steve Buscemi, Michael Clark, Duncan, Will Patton, like guys that now are well-established character actors. Billy Bob is freaking great as the kind of like exposition dump dude who like makes it work. And then we got Keith, David, Jason Isaacs, like all these people keep popping up and you're like, everybody in this movie, if you had this cast now, this movie would cost three times as much just from the cast. And uh, they're all giving their all to a movie that's plot is ridiculous. And they try and give us the moments in the text about why it has to be oil drillers who go up and do this rather than astronauts who are taught how to drill. And and they try and just say like, you know, drilling is a fine art. You can't learn in two weeks, <laughs> but being an astronaut. Yeah, we could teach you that in six days. All right. That shit doesn't hold up. But when you give me fun supporting characters around here, like Steve Buscemi as Rockhound, the guy who's willing to spend all his money on hookers and he's always in trouble with underage women is like a creepy stereotypical Steve Buscemi rule, but the way that it's deployed to break the tension throughout this movie is hilarious. This film is supported by brilliant character actors that really take the serious moments of this movie and sort of sort of uh, 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 temper that with comedic moments so it's not so serious and it's not so dire. And when it is, they come in there with a zinger to, to to sort of give you a moment of peace before they hit you with a dramatic moment. Um, like one of my favorite moments in this film is when we're first introduced to the relationship between a uh, between AJ and Grace, and that whole scene with uh, Harry chasing AJ all over the all over the uh, the the oil rig is fantastic, and I love how um, how. As 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 we're going through it, it's kind of this sort of slapstick moment, but it just works for the character of Harry because he is sort of like this hard nosed, uh, uh, no nonsense kind of father, and it makes sense that a character like him or slash Bruce Willis would do that if he ever caught somebody sleeping with his daughter. Those moments feel very Michael Bay humor, but whereas later he would crank up like the the gross, you know, misogynistic Michael Bay off-color humor to like 10 on a dial. This is like Michael Bay humor at like a five. And I think like, you know, oh yeah, this young hotshot is 
caught in bed with the guy's daughter. But the way that they do it is endearing and funny for both of the characters, because we kind of understand, you know, young love and Affleck being this guy who who's a little bit cocky, but does look up to Harry um, and seeing Willis get to play like <laughs> the guy who just found a dude in bed with his daughter and put out and like frustrated is really funny. And they do add those moments of that kind of off color <laughs> Michael Bay humor right off the bat. So the other thing for context of this movie, it came out in this, as we mentioned, in the summer of 98. One of the other big blockbusters in the summer of 1998 was Godzilla. And this movie opens with Eddie Griffin riding through New York with a dog on a bicycle and his dog attacks Godzilla, a big inflatable Godzilla and a couple Godzilla toys. And then this movie says, oh, yeah, Godzilla ain't shit. And this is when the meteor shower starts. And we see a Godzilla get blown up by this meteor. And this was like in the in the time this movie saying like that other summer movie. Fuck them. Godzilla ain't nothing compared to an asteroid. And it's funny, you know, we still get disaster movies now, but not to this level. The opening of this movie with the asteroid shower just demolishing like New York. And, you know, there were was talk of revising this movie a few years after because there's a shot of the twin towers smoking with a big hole in them. Um, but you know, wisely the producers didn't. So we still get this, even though that's a tough image to watch now, 25 years later, but the special effects and the destruction, the practical explosions, cars smashing into through the air into each other, the miniatures just exploding into a million pieces feels real even when we get bad matte lines or like some they have cg was a thing so we get some bad computer effects but compared to now where we know that they wouldn't even they probably wouldn't even smash the cars together they would just do it all in the computer to save money like the opening destruction of this movie is fucking awesome and i know that jj had nothing to do with that because in the script it would just be a little bit of destruction happens and we see these buildings whatever but Bay brings so much to it. But I think that the the funny moments of like, you know, watching New Yorkers kind of be like, hey, asteroid, fuck you. I'm walking here. It is something that the script did have in it. I really enjoy that opening meteor shower destruction of New York, because like you like you said, after after um, the attacks of uh, 9-11, there was a. a a discussion on whether or not to sort of change movies that had come before that showed mass destruction because that might be triggering to some people. But I'm really glad like uh, that they didn't change it, that they kept that the same because um, there's the moment uh, among all the destruction where the top of the Chrysler building chips off and, and, and Michael Bay drives the camera down to the ground and on a taxi and a body comes from the Chrysler building and it impacts a taxi. I'm like, there's no way in hell that any director would do that nowadays because of what happened on 11. But I, but still, it's just a, it's just an awesome scene. I mean, when, um, uh, when, uh, when, when the train station is completely demolished, he starts on the inside, and then all of a sudden you see a big asteroid come in. You see the guy wearing the I Love New York shirt. He's gone. A giant, massive. It's, it's uh, amazing. I, I don't know what to say. It's just. Bayhem at its best. 
And throughout this movie, there's stuff that now we don't get as often, even at the big climax, not to jump ahead in terms of the story, but there are lots of shots where like we visit places around the world as they're kind of celebrating that the, the earth is saved. And like literally Bay and his crew would go to Tibet just to fig to film like a couple people running in slow motion down the street and like all these beautiful vistas and Bayhem sort of styles of, you know, his classic slow motion, the American flag billowing in the background with a lot of golden light right at magic hour. And there's stuff that a lot of modern blockbusters just get rid of unless you're someone like a Spielberg who can demand it, because a lot of times we're like, we will just film people on the volume or in front of a green screen and then we'll put the background in rather than traveling to all these places. And this is a movie that every time we're in a different country, it feels tangible like we're actually there. And I think that's just the difference. This was one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time, $140 million. It did do 200 domestic, so it ended up being a hit, but it was a gamble. And I think part of that budget was the multiple writers brought in. JJ did a pass, somebody else did a pass, but then Bay really liked JJ's pass. So like, he's like, this is the guy who's going to finish it. He's the best guy at the dialogue. And so like, he came in again for another pass to be like the main guy to make sure that the dialogue and stuff was working. And I think it's especially noticeable in the first hour of the movie. The first hour of the movie is, is like, even now, one of the, the, the best like opening hours of like a giant blockbuster before we get to like it's the entire fate of the world at hand because as we're meeting all of these roughnecks and seeing the oil crew everybody has a distinct character even in their limited screen time they all feel like real people you know Buscemi's a little bit cartoony but everybody else kind of has like this lived in quality to them i don't think that they're people who just came off the street they all have like a good rapport and as these everyday working guys realize the fate of the world is possibly going to be in their hands. And then when they start training, like everything before we go to space, I think is just some of the best stuff script wise. It's strong because like I said, we meet all these people even for just a few minutes and we have to get a sense of who they are. Billy Bob Thornton as you know, the, the head NASA point guy is so good, even though we can feel like the, Oh, I'm so sick of this shit, but also I've never had to deal with stuff on this level. And now I got to work with these people who are not on my same level. And I love just the exasperation. And like I said, the lived inness. And even though it is famously known that this scene is not all JJ because the actors made their list of demands, a moment like that list of demands for these guys to go into space and actually do this, where they're like, yeah, they never want to pay taxes again, ever. Like, these moments are funny and believable, and they endear us to these guys before we strap everybody into a rocket and go do the outer space shit that I don't think is as dynamic. In terms of filmmaking versus now, I still think it's quite good. Like I said, the first hour of Armageddon is where this movie really shines because we really get the relationship between AJ and Grace, the dynamic between Grace, Harry, and AJ, and even someone who is a peripheral side character like Will Patton's chick um, in like a small scene that other movies would probably cut. And it feels like a JJ kind of moment that comes full circle by the end where he goes to visit presumably his ex-wife who's like, you can't be here. 
Like you've had too many chances. And he's like, I know I've fucked up. I just wanted to see the kid. And she's like, who is this? <laughs> it's a salesman. Don't worry about it. And we know that this guy has a past. He's been a piece of shit. He's trying to get his life back together. And even the wife character in those small minutes, like we feel the weight of, I kind of get why she doesn't want this guy to come back in and be part of this kid's life. And it's all very succinct. And a lot of it is just simple dialogue, but then it's a great payoff at the end where like, you know, they come back and chick is a hero and his kid gets to finally actually meet him because they realize that if he was willing to put his life on the line, then maybe he has changed and he's not such a piece of shit. So I like that, you know, in a big blockbuster like this, especially when you have a Michael Bay who can say, I want this movie to be 2.5 hours. And this was not in the day where every movie was two and a half hours long. So that was like a big deal at the time that this blockbuster was not two hours flat. Um, we get those moments where the movie can breathe a little bit, but it makes the stakes so much better later. And that's all JJ Hallmark, where like, give even a side character a little bit of a home life that we can somehow pay off with emotion later. And we will care whether they live or die when they're drilling and a dude gets space dementia. You brought up that JJ makes these characters feel like they're actually tangible, that they feel lived in. Because as writers, the best thing that you can do for characters that you want to put in, in for characters that you want to put a in a impossible situation is you have to make them feel like they're real. And you have to give them you have to give them as much personality as you can. Because if you give them as much personality as you can, when you put them up against it, the audience is going to feel for them. And 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 to me, I don't know, I don't know how you feel, Matt, but to me, that's part of a that's part of the winning formula that Armageddon has because again, you care for these people, you care for people like Chick because he has a big giant gambling pro, uh, a problem because when he's first uh, when, when he's first brought up to the people at NASA, uh, Harry says that you can find him at the uh, at the craps table at Caesars in Las Vegas. So just by that, just by that one section of dialogue you understand that he has a gambling problem and that's why that's presumably why he had a falling out with his ex-wife but even um uh, people like bear people like um owen wilson's character who i can't remember the name of right now he's a brilliant geologist uh you know max uh the, the, the guy that reminds me of drew Carey all the time all these people have they they feel well-rounded so again when they're shot up there against, uh, you know, when they're shot up there to drill on this asteroid to save the planet, it all works because guess what, guys? We care. That's writing 101, and it just works like that. And I absolutely love that Billy Bob Thornton is given a, just a little bit of a backstory. I mean, there's this really small moment when Harry and Billy Bob Thornton's character, I can't remember his name at the moment, I'm sorry, guys, have this conversation. And and I think it's I, I think it's Harry who brings up why didn't why didn't you try out for the astronaut program? And and it's just this really quick shot of when it's uh, Michael Bay does this really quick shot of he focuses on one of Billy Bob Thornton's legs, and you see that he has like a like a like a brace or something. So you understand that he's disabled. And you're like, oh, he wanted to be an astronaut, but he couldn't because of his disability. I I love that, and not you know, and not just because I'm a disabled individual as well. I love giving characters really sappy, sad backstories, so you feel for them when they're put up against it. I just for for me as a writer and as an audience member, 
stuff like that just clicks and works. Yeah, I think that's the stuff that is vitally important in that first hour, because if you if it doesn't work, then you just don't care. And when people start to die, when we go to space, then we just won't give a shit. <laughs> you know, and as much as you watch a movie like this, and for the most part during this movie, you would assume they're not going to fail. We don't know all the sacrifices that will have to be made, but we're pretty sure that the Earth won't end. But as Deep Impact showed us, sometimes the bad stuff still sort of happens anyway in some sort of capacity. So I, I can't remember if, if it was like a given. Watching it now, like you never for a minute really believe they're, they're going to they're gonna fail. And the science of it is a little bit wishy-washy. Like if we don't explode it by this point, then it's not going to separate properly. Well, what if it doesn't separate properly anyway? Even if earlier, like we never know because they miscalculated something earlier because now it was tossing and turning. It was like, well, what if all your calculations are wrong, but we don't spend time on the science because that's not the important thing. The important thing is the thrills of the action and the characters that we have been invested in, which is why if that first hour doesn't work, the rest of the movie falls apart. And luckily it works. And Bay does his most with just astounding visuals. We get a fun training montage as they're learning to be astronauts and they're in the water and they're in the anti-gravity chamber and all that stuff. And it's, it's fun. And, you know, we're cutting it to Aerosmith. <laughs> we got a lot of Aerosmith in this movie, not even just, we got physical manifestation of Aerosmith and Liv Tyler. And then we've got nonstop Aerosmith soundtrack, but it, it works and it feels now like a throwback and, and like a classy throwback. You know, if we had a movie now where somebody was in it and all the music was one band, we would be like, uh, cash grab. They were just trying to sell soundtracks of this popular band. But here it feels legitimate in a way that now I think we would be a little bit more cynical. And I like that. And then as we go into space, you know, we meet a few more of the characters like a William Fickner, um, who's a great character actor as the the colonel who's going to really have to oversee these guys when they're in space and make sure that everything goes according to plan. And of course, we know it's not going to all go according to plan. Um, I think story wise, a lot of the stuff in outer space is still fine. And we lead to that ultimate sacrifice that we know somebody is going to have to make and. Even when Affleck draws the short straw, you're like, they ain't no way they're going to let Affleck be the guy like this. This love story can't be some sort of tragic love story. We're obviously going to fix this. Um, and that stuff's fine. I think the filmmaking takes a little bit of a hit in terms of just the sheer environment they're in, like the, the chaos of it. Nothing feels as dynamic. Sometimes geography is a little bit off as the two teams are doing their thing and in different places and we're really worried about remote detonation and signals and stuff that I just couldn't give less of a shit about on a rewatch. Um, but for the most part, like the script keeps it tight and keeps it concise to just try and have the big emotional payoff at the end of those sequences work. Um, so I think, you know, the, the third act is the least, the least good part of this movie, but it's not, it's not catastrophic and it's still, has some excitement that I think is mostly Michael Bay kind of doing stuff rather than the script doing the work. Once they go into space, unlike everything that happened when they were on Earth, I do feel that the movie goes from funny-go-lucky, if I can call it that, 
when they're not in space to when they go to space, it gets more serious and it gets more dire because when they get, when they go to space, it feels like to me that they have a they they have a ticking clock, and if they don't dig this hole by a specific time period and get the bomb in the hole, they're all going to be dead. So I really like that about um, all the stuff in space. And also, when I was watching the film back in the day, I felt a sense of danger for these characters because obviously I didn't know who was going to live and who was going to die. But watching this movie today, I for in, in preparation for this conversation, I kind of really zeroed in on the dialogue that was being used by the characters uh, uh, while they were in space. And it wasn't as good as the, as the dialogue that J.J. had them say, when they were on earth. But, 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 but again, I think that's because of the situation and because that, because of JJ and his co-writer had to, sh- had to sort of let the personal stuff take a back seat, uh, in, you know, in deference for the bigger situation. Uh, one, one thing that I found really, really fun, really, really funny after one of the spaceships crashes because it gets hit, because it gets hit by an asteroid, uh, Ben Affleck, um, bear and love the, the, the Russian guy from the, from the gas station that they go pick up. Um, I find it really unbelievable that this asteroid is so big that they find a, a goddamn, like, a, you know, a goddamn, uh, like a, like a, like a cliff. That to me, when I was a kid, I was like, even, even then I was like, come on guys. But it, but it allows for a fantastic moment where love the where where lab the big Russian guy goes out of the armadillo and he start any and he physically hangs on the outside of the ship while the ship is jumping a big canyon on the on the goddamn asteroid. It's a great shot, and then, you know, and then you know, and then when love comes back in, he goes, "I never saw Star Wars." I'm like, "Come on!" The references to Star Wars definitely felt like a J.J. Abrams add-on, and uh, as humorless as most of that third act is adding Peter Stormare as the Russian astronaut does add some goofy humor to it. And it's always fun that this was only a couple of years after Fargo. And of course him and Steve Buscemi both being the, the dirt bag bad guys of Fargo and together. Now they're marooned in space. Um, even though they don't have a lot of time together, I thought was, was pretty fun. And yeah, we get, we get some funny moments where you know, they're arguing over who would be Han Solo, who would be the Han Solo of the crew. And so I like those those moments work better in terms of like the pop culture moments that carry on versus the Godzilla thing, where like, I don't think unless you remembered that this came out a few short weeks after Godzilla 98, you would just be like, oh, this is just referencing any version of Godzilla in the opening. But no, it was supposed to be a fuck you to Roland Emmerich's Godzilla put out by Sony six weeks earlier. So it that's the kind of stuff that doesn't transcend, but those fun conversations of no no, I would be I would be Han Solo. No, I think you'd be Chewbacca. Oh, I haven't ever seen Star Wars. Um, that stuff is still endearing and fun. Also, I really love the moment when when the president back on Earth gets a gets a report on you know on the fact that the hole's not, you know, dug yet, that they're running out of time. And the president has the astronaut's stupid idea to just detonate the nuclear warhead without it being in the hole. And I love the conversation that Harry has with Colonel Sharp after he sort of, after he chokes him with like a, with like a, a, a scissor. I don't know what they're called, like a scissor of some kind. And he, and he, and he just has this series. He has this heartfelt conversation with the guy and he goes, 
Why are you listening to people that are miles away? You are, you are here right now. We are here right now. We have a job to do. And if we don't do this, everybody dies. And, you know, and Harry Stamper goes, you know, as God is my witness, I will make it, I will make 800 feet. I will do it. And, you know, you know, and, you know, and I love that moment where Colonel Shark, you know, where Colonel Sharp believes him and they, he helps them up and they open up the nuclear warhead and they dig up all the wires. And I love that the clock on the nuclear warhead stops at two. It's like this classic, it's like this classic movie moment where instead of stopping at one, stopped at two. I thought that was great. And then when, um, when Rockhound and Max uh, walk in and they go, oh, what do we miss? Great. It's just so great. Yeah, that stuff's good. And, you know, the the whole, I trust this guy and we're not going to remote detonate and I'm going to give him enough time is the fun, exciting stuff that you want for a movie like this. In, in real life, would we risk the fate of the entire planet on a hunch that one guy is going to pull through? I don't I don't know that, that would actually hold up. But if you're coming to Armageddon for realism, then I think you've missed the point from the get go. So I think in terms of just pure thrills and like the fun twists and turns that the script takes and of course stopping the bomb just in the nick of time, uh, you know, getting like you said, the detonator stops at two. And it's like, okay, and even when Bruce Willis is blowing the bomb, he literally waits until like he's only got one second left before the cutoff point before he does it. And it's like, these are all movie moments that we just have to do. We we kind of have to do because if it was, you know, all right, you got three minutes until you can detonate this thing and we'll be good. And Bruce Willis would just be like, all right, fuck it. See you guys. Boom. But, you know, with three minutes left that everybody would be like, he didn't take the time. So we've got to make sure he takes the time and makes it as exciting as possible and says goodbye to his daughter in a heartfelt Zoom call or whatever it is, you know, Um, which unfortunately, I like Liv Tyler a lot in the second half of the movie. She's really sidelined to just be like sad girl stuck at NASA (laughs) with with nothing to do. And I get, you know, even when. Harry makes the ultimate sacrifice and she's still like super depressed. We understand the depression because her dad is dead, but like literally every other person on the face of the earth was going to be dead. So if you are going to have any sort of uplift in losing someone, it would be that they literally their one life saved 8 billion. (laughs) So I wish that we could have given her a little bit more, a little bit more of like a bittersweet tone you know, they try and do it with Colonel Sharp being like, I just wanted to shake the hand of the daughter of the man who's the most brave. Per-. And I was like, JJ really fumbled the bag on writing that line because we should have found a better way. I just wanted to shake the hand of, you know, the the hero's daughter or something, but like the daughter of the man who was the thing. I was like, oh, Jesus. I'm sure Fickner on the day was like, can't say this shit. They're like, you got to, and you got to make it real earnest as hell. So I, I, I like that at the end, you know, we get, it's the real jingoistic USA fucking did it like stuff, but it's satisfying because we have really come to care about a lot of this, this team and these people and seeing the wedding and trying ending on a, a joyous moment, even though, you know, the A-list movie star didn't make it to the closing credits still works fairly well for this type of film. You bring up a great point that Liv Tyler's character, Grace, is sort of put aside after 
our our main cast and our main group of old jewelers going to space. And you're right, she isn't given much to do. I mean, Michael Bay goes back to her several times uh, with her crying or playing with her wedding ring. There's this great scene that Liv Tyler goes through when she finds out that the nuke is being detonated, uh, 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 you know, um, you know, before time, right? And she basically says, "You." She has a freak out, and she goes, "You haven't told them yet." And you know, my she 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 really gets these emotional moments. And in one moment, she actually attacks uh, Truman, the character played by Billy Bob Thornton, and forces him to the ground. So she really she gets some moments. But I'm definitely in agreement with you that after that, she's kind of muted and she doesn't really get that much. The moment when Harry decides to sacrifice himself for AJ, for his whole team, and for everyone else on the planet, I thought that the line reading by Ben Affleck. Look, I I, I love Ben Affleck. I, he's a he's one of the he's a great director. He's a really solid actor. But in that moment, I'm like, oh, dude, yeah, you you needed like a couple more takes. Uh, that was bad. I was like, I did. I I did not like his reading on that. I mean, I understand that the guy is under stress. He, he's about to have his father figure pulled away from him. But I'm like, dude, you could have used a couple more takes on that. Well, and there's a scene where I was like, the editor must have hated Affleck for some reason. Because there's a part where like Affleck does get emotional. And he does like a little bit of a like Yelp. And he makes this face. And I'm like, oh, fuck. He's looking like, <laughs> like it's, ter- it's terrible. And I'm like it it undercuts the character that he would be this it would be fine if he's emotional but like this makes him look like a real wimp and not in like a good emotional way and i'm like Affleck didn't nail this take and they used it so i was like why did they why did they use that it makes aj look like such dipshit and it's just because affleck was not the actor that he is today he's much better now but also now he's in a position where he won't take a role that's where he has to punch above his weight. He'll usually find something where he, he can just kind of do his thing and it'll work. Um, so this, you know, in the early goings, he just has to coast on the charm. But when he has to turn on that stuff in the last act, he doesn't quite get it all the way there. It's like a six out of 10. And, you know, famously, a lot of people in this movie have kind of disowned this movie. <laughs> so like, you know, Affleck has said like, yeah, I was, I was dog shit in it. And, uh, Michael Bay has said that he thinks it's one of his worst movies and he doesn't necessarily think the third act came together the way he wanted it to. Um, And other people have said they did it because they wanted to get a bigger house. They needed the paycheck, what have you. And I don't think when you watch this now, it feels like the good kind of blockbuster that we just don't make as often anymore. If we were going to make this now, it would have to be based on a previous IP. It would have to be based on a graphic novel. It would have to be based on a video game. It would have to be some toy that we had forgotten about. And then we could get this movie. Whereas back in the day, no, it was just a high concept, big blockbuster. And it was just based on science, <laughs> like a scientific fact that could happen again. So I think when you watch it now, all the stuff that those people at the time were like, yeah, it was a cash grab. It was a paycheck actually makes it feel like people gave a shit at the time. And the people making this took time to think things through. It didn't feel like we are making this movie to continue the IP set up for streaming services and make sure everybody buys the t-shirt on their way out of the theater. And that's why it's still for the most part held up. I had a blast watching this. I think 
you know, if you want to have a great 90s destruction movie marathon, you can throw on, you know, Independence Day, Armageddon, and then Dealer's Choice for the end if you want to suffer through Tommy Lee Jones and Volcano, or if you want to watch Pierce Brosnan Battle of Volcano in Dante's Peak, go for it. So there's there's something charming about these disaster movies that we have sort of lost, because even when we try and do them like a San Andreas, they don't have the same feel that they did back in the 90s. They just don't feel like this kind of movie. And part of it is the script and the heart that a guy like JJ would have brought to this and the the dialogue adds so much memorable lines that don't feel like we're just riffing on just pop culture or trying to you know be be too family friendly like we're pushing the boundaries a little bit but it's still a movie that everybody can go and enjoy and just feel good at the end and as we you know cue the the big soundtrack song at the end and give you the the wedding and everybody living their happy life we can all feel fulfilled and satisfied as we leave the theater that we we had a good time and we're entertained do you think do you think that movies aren't made like this anymore because of uh hollywood's need to like make every movie well this sounds pretentious in itself but do you think that hollywood has gotten to uppity with itself like they need to make movies matter nowadays and like they and, and and like they've forgotten guys, you can make fun movies too. I think I think part of the problem is that when we try and make these fun movies, we don't give them the budgets that are needed to pull them off. Or we are now, like I mentioned with Michael Bay himself, at a point where we don't care as much about the script, the characters, and the thoughtfulness of the story. Because we still, in the last couple of years, we have gotten a few movies that aim to be this this movie, but they're disasters. Fucking Geostorm and Moonfall come to mind where you're like, they wanted to be an Armageddon. They wanted to be that mix of disaster, high concept. They want to be a twister, but they don't have the characters. They don't have the story or the heart. And some of it is the heart just isn't there when it feels like everybody was just shooting on a green screen and Gerard Butler sat in a helicopter in front of a green screen for eight hours screaming about a geostorm and nobody was actually in danger or, you know, uh oh, gravity is fucked. Let's get into our Jeep Cherokee X, whatever. And half the movie feels like an ad for a car that can withstand the gravity of the moon. And you're like, why are we doing this? Why are we not caring about the person who's driving the car? Why are you showing me the Bluetooth capabilities of this car while the moon is falling out of the sky? And that's part of the problem. And it's because these movies don't make money like they used to. So to balance that off, we either cut the budget for the effects. We always say the script doesn't matter. They're just coming for the action or we overload on sponsorships to, to bring that budget down and it just ruins the movie. I, I definitely agree with you that I think Hollywood has forgotten that, guys, in order for you to make a good, successful disaster movie, if you want to make one, you have to make it two ways, not just one way. You have to have the character moments in there and you have to have and you have to have the good you have to have the good spectacle, the good action pieces to make it work. One, you, you take out one and it doesn't work. You get movies like Moonfall. You get movies like Geostorm that you just mentioned. The straight musical score for this movie. I think the use of violins and the use of guitar is so good. 
Uh, I, I do not know off the top of my head who did the score, but whoever did, I mean, oh, it was a amazing. guy. Trevor Rabin did the score. Yes. Yes. Trevor Rabin. Thank you for being uh, Johnny on spot there, Matt. But he I mean, his score is great. The main theme of the, of the thing, the the um, the sort of love theme that he made for um, <clears throat> AJ and and Grace is wonderful. And I I just have to say, I mean, I know it's cheesy, but um, in, you know, you know, in the last moments of the film, when Michael Bay has he cuts between NASA space and inside the spaceship. And, you know, when the colonel was thinking about turning back because uh, Harry, you know, has fallen, he's not going to push the button. There's this great moment where it just pans over to Ben Affleck and he goes, no, I know he's going to do it. Harry doesn't know how to fail. And then, you know, it cuts over to a close up of, uh, of the switch and Bruce Willis pushing the switch. And he goes, we win, Gracie. You can shoot me. You can call me crazy. But I love that fucking line. It's such a great final line for a character to have. It's so great. Yeah, definitely memorable. And it's it's nice when you can throw those kind of memorable lines in and not have it stand out as like, oh, somebody was just waiting to throw off this zinger at the moment. I, I think that what makes Armageddon special to me um, is that it's just fun. It's just a fun disaster movie. And, 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 and I'm not, I'm not the type of viewer that needs to be, that needs to be blown away. Every time I watch a movie, I watch movies for multiple reasons as, as I'm sure you do, Matt, but it's, it's, it's just so good to have a movie like this to where you can kick back and you can rebel in the cheesiness and you can rebel in the bad acting and you can rebel in Ben Affleck getting awful takes as awful as they are. But it is good. It's just good to relax once in a while as a, as a, as a, as a film goer. And I don't think that nowadays, I don't think that we're given that permission uh, often enough. Yeah. And I think, you know, JJ got very lucky that when you write a big tentpole blockbuster like this, when you have a great team actually executing, it can make your work stand up and hold up. And I think that the contributions of JJ is definitely important because if the characters don't feel as strong as they do, this movie would fade. Obviously, we've mentioned Michael Bay and what he brings to the destruction because if the threat doesn't feel real. But also, you know, this movie is a Jerry Bruckheimer production and Bruckheimer does it like nobody else. even still now where Bruckheimer doesn't make as many movies as he used to. Um, but when he does, he still brings this touch to it that he knows what audiences want to see generally. Obviously the pirates of the Caribbean movies took a lot of Bruckheimer's time and focus and got progressively worse as they, as they went along diminishing returns. But then, you know, last year Bruckheimer doesn't get the credit on top gun Maverick that I think he actually does deserve alongside Tom Cruise and McQuarrie and Kaczynski, because without Bruckheimer being there, it's not the same dynamic. That's one of the guys who's the main facilitator. And on this movie in particular, Armageddon, it was Bruckheimer working with Gail Ann Hurd, who is one of the main producers of James Cameron's early work. And you can feel that that's what this is. It's the Bruckheimer action with the Gail Ann Hurd bringing the James Cameron-esque sci-fi stuff to make sure that those marry together with JJ's humanistic script that he would, you know, continue to, this is just before Felicity started. I believe this came out in July and Felicity starts in the fall. So 
this is where JJ shows us that he's got that humanity thing that he's interested in. And his work right after this is where he really brings that to the fore and he gets known for it. You know, next week on the pod, we'll talk about the next movie that he wrote, which is Joyride, a Hitchcockian, Spielbergian thriller horror movie that doesn't really have the humanistic elements of this or Felicity, but is him homaging his heroes in a way that just to make a pure, entertaining, visceral movie and it, the way that it sort of echoes some of the the dynamics that we start to see in this movie with, you know, three people who've got like an interesting relationship and family ties and how that all works will be interesting to sort of track as we we move on from here. So that'll do it for Armageddon, JJ's first big, huge hundred million plus tentpole credit. It would definitely not be the last hundred million plus writing credit he would get. And certainly a damn sight better than gone fishing. If you guys want to get in touch with us, you can tweet hashtag whatever we are on Twitter still or X or whatever Elon is calling it this week um, at JJ Universe 815 or using the hashtag Radio 815. If we get any comments, we will read them on the show. You can find the podcast everywhere you get podcasts or on YouTube at the Radio 815 YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, tell your friends, get the word out there. If you guys want to get in touch with me, I am also currently on Elon's platform at Matt Crandall. Marcelo, what's the best spot people can reach out to you? I'm also on that ever-changing house of Elon, uh, X, Twitter, or whatever he's going to call it a week from now. I'm at CreekFanatic88. As I mentioned, next week we'll be talking about Joyride 2001, not 2023's Joyride. So check that out if you are watching along. And until next time, Radio 815 over and out. Radio 815 is a Balloonhead Productions presentation in association with Killer Newt Productions.